I just wanted to thank each and every one of you for supporting the Politocrat Daily Podcast during this year, 2020. What a difficult and challenging year this has been. And when we look back at this year, if we choose to, we will say, my goodness me, that was one hell of a year. And I never want to see a year like that again. It's been a very challenging year. And it means everything to me, even in a year like this, to know that you spent some of your time listening to this podcast. So once again, Omar Moore here saying thank you so much for your support during this calendar year. Every single day since the middle of March of this year, I've recorded an episode of this podcast. The podcast is in 29 countries and it's going to grow with your help and your continued support. So thank you very much. Much appreciated. I really do admire and respect you all for your time, for your listening ear and your feedback and all the platforms that you can listen on, including Audible, Amazon Music, Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and so many others. Thank you so very much for your support. It means the world to me. And please subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about the Politocrat Daily Podcast. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Thursday, December the 3rd, 2020. It's time to hunker down. It's time to cancel everything. And if it isn't essential, don't do it. That was Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti. The urgency of coronavirus and its spread here in the United States and in California as a state, but all over the country, is something that is getting far worse as the winter months arrive. And the economy and jobs have absolutely tanked. On this episode of The Politocrat, Accounting, accountability, and awareness, and what we can do to turn all of this around. All of that coming up next. You take a look at this record number. Uh, it's a clo- approaching 2,500 here in Los Angeles County of people that are in the hospital. That's up about 85% from two weeks ago. And they're also saying that 24% of these people are in the ICU. So that's obviously of concern. And the fact that right now there's only 122 ICU beds. Remember, we're a county of about 10 million. That is also very concerning. And that's why they're concerned that if things continue as they are, we could be without hospital beds by the time we got to Christmas. And so that's the reason why we've heard uh, the mayor say this. Welcome back. 
That was Stephanie Elam of CNN talking today about Los Angeles County. That's just one county here in California. Here's what she had to say about the rest of the state. Taking a look at California overall, a record number of new cases yesterday, that number 20,759 cases. To put this into perspective, over the last seven days, California has added more than 104,000 cases, according to Johns Hopkins University uh, data on this, and that is up about 8% from last week. Our positivity rate at 6.9% over the last two weeks, and that is up nearly 2% from 14 days ago. So obviously, these numbers going in the wrong direction and that is why you hear the mayor of los angeles last night saying cancel everything stay home avoid congregating this is a very dangerous time to be out jim california is the sixth largest economy on the planet if it were a nation it would be it would be the fifth or sixth largest economy on the face of the earth California, by itself, population 41 million people. Here we have 58 counties. 52 of them are classified as widespread risk for coronavirus based on the number of infections in those 52 counties. Those include both San Francisco County and Los Angeles County, the latter of which you heard Stephanie Elam talk about. As for the, inst- in the entire state itself, there are over 19,000 people who have died here in this state from coronavirus. And you heard Stephanie Elam talk about the rates of infection. I mean, this is horrifying, as it is in the Dakotas, as it is all over this country, as it is all over the planet. In the UK right now, nearly 60,000 people have died from coronavirus. By the time you've listened to this episode, over 60,000 people in the UK will have died from this virus. The UK has a population of roughly 64 or 65 million people. So if you do the math, that's approximately 1%, just a little less than 1% of the population. All over this planet, all over this planet, there are high rates of infection. And we are going into the wintertime. In about two weeks or thereabouts, it will officially be winter. All across the United States, it's getting colder. Even though it's still warm and sunny here in California, the temperatures here are lowering too. It's not like New York or Chicago or you know, Boston or Minnesota. But it's certainly getting cooler here as well. 
we really have to do something about this virus. And it's all well and good that the head of the Operation Warp Speed Task Force, Mohammed Slawi, is saying that by the end of this month, we're going to have 100 million doses of a vaccine available for the general public. That's all well and good, and that is good news. But the attendant questions remain. Will this virus be free of charge? Will, excuse me, this vaccine, will it be free of charge? And how is it going to be administered? How is it going to be released and rolled out? There are obvious priorities, healthcare workers, um, care home workers, and people at those facilities who need to get this vaccine first, and they will. But we really need to make sure that this vaccine is rolled out properly and is not rushed. And the other issue is skepticism, something that you've heard discussed on this podcast this week. How to build the trust in the black and Latinx communities. And um, how do we do that? How are we um, in a position where that happens? What is it that the medical community has to do? I mean, I have my ideas about that, but I'm not really answering the question. I'm just posing it. What is it that the medical community has to do? I mean, again, it's more of a rhetorical question to earn the trust, to build the trust in and of black communities, particularly Latino communities, particularly Native American communities, particularly. These are the three communities that are most affected by coronavirus. The levels in these three groups are higher than any other. The Latinx and Native American levels are through the roof and the levels of virus in the black community are also very high. These are the three groups and each of those groups has a very, very good reason to be skeptical about vaccines. Los Angeles County is a highly populated area for the Latino community. In fact, lots of California is. It is a so-called majority-minority state. I can't stand that word minority because brown people are not a minority of people around the globe. And I always believe that global perspectives in terms of this are very important. So this is the challenge if you want a vaccine to be effective, you are going to have to be able to roll it out properly. There can be no rushing this and there must be a certain percentage of the population that takes this vaccine in order for this vaccination process to be effective. Because the vaccination process will not be effective if it's only being taken by 30 or 40% of the population. That's just 
not going to work for eradicating this virus. I believe you're going to probably need between 75 to 80% of the population to be vaccinated in order for this virus to start to recede. Now, I didn't say the virus was going to be going away completely. What I was saying was, is that if you want this virus to start to recede here in the United States or anywhere, I think that every country's population will have to have 75% of its members vaccinated. That's my thought. Completely unscientific. I'm not a medical doctor. But I do believe that that is what we're going to have to strive for at the minimum. I would love to, and you know, I, I hope to in the next uh, week or so have a, a medical a professional on, a doctor on to talk about this. Because this is one of the questions I plan to pose um, about how many people in a population or what percentage of a population do you think needs to be getting this vaccine there's lots of skepticism and you know this is very important so people must in the meantime wear masks and even when the vaccine comes wear a mask you have to do these things collaboratively as i have talked about before and it's very important also to avoid crowds Obviously, in grocery stores, it's a bit more difficult, but avoid crowds. Make sure that you aren't in places where people are shouting or raising their voices or anything like that without masks on, which would mean make sure you are away from open restaurants, whether they are outdoor, whether they are pickup. It's just too much of a risk. And here in San Francisco... The mayor, London Breed, has said that she's looking at closing outdoor dining because the rates here are really rocketing upwards. And Mayor Breed herself got into a little hot water recently. She had, um, last month or maybe in October, gone to the same French laundry restaurant, that fancy place in Napa Valley, California, that the California governor, Gavin Newsom, went to a few days after her or a day or two after her. She had to apologize for that. And of course, we know Governor Newsom did as well. And she's now saying that it's a very good possibility that outdoor restaurants will be closed. Now, that means a lot of difficulty for those businesses but you have to ask yourself, what is more important in this moment? Is it saving lives or is it making money? And that's really a false choice because it's always, in my view, saving lives. Now, that may not be the underbelly of what the country thinks or what the systems are that predicate property over people that consistently show, based on the fact that we are the world's richest nation, 
a lack of care for human beings and that the profit motive is always, almost always put ahead of the human motive, the human feeling, the human being. But these are issues of health, not of politics. These are issues of health and safety. And if you want an economy to be anywhere near where it once was, you have to take measures to protect the public welfare and the safety and health of the citizenry. I mean, it really is as simple as that. Same thing everywhere across this country. The Dakotas have the highest rates of infection in the world. I mean, North and South Dakota are absolutely radioactive with this virus. And you still have a governor in South Dakota, the Republican governor, Kristi Noem, who still has not issued a mask mandate. This virus is getting worse, not weaker. In the meantime, as we wait for this vaccine, and even when the vaccine comes, as I said, we have to still wear masks, practice physical distancing, wash hands. I mean, do you still do that? Do you still wash your hands? Do you still wipe down your groceries? Do you do that? Have you, have you been? I know some people have been, but I know other people haven't been. We cannot afford to be lax. This is the time when the virus is going to be strongest, especially now as winter comes. So please, everybody, please wear a mask. Put the mask on indoors before you go outside. Please do that. Do not go outside and then put the mask on outside. You don't know what kind of sneezing has been done, what kind of droplets are in the air. You can't see them with the naked eye. And if you walk out of an indoor place and go outdoors and you walk into the air and the atmosphere, you have no idea whether somebody sneezed there 10 minutes ago, five minutes ago, Half an hour ago, you have no idea. You don't know if someone has this virus and they've been coughing. How would you know? How could you tell? Did you hear them? And, and how would you know? How would you know at all? So we have to practice real care here. So that when you're outside, you already have the mask on. It really makes the best sense. Please, this is the smallest sacrifice I think people will ever make. Please wear a mask. It's so important. You can literally save lives. And you can also protect yourself. It shows that you care. It shows that you understand and it also shows that you have a level of empathy for the, here in this country at least, 275,000 plus people who have died from this coronavirus. And that you're in some kind of solidarity with their families. 
Obviously, you haven't experienced that loss, perhaps, as they have, but maybe you have. Maybe you are someone who has a loved one who's been lost from this virus, or you know someone who's lost their life from this virus. But we need to start educating each other, and we need to wear masks. I'm sure there are people you see in your neighborhood who still don't wear them. And as I said a few weeks back, or a few months back, you don't have to go up to them and tell them don't uh, to put on a mask. You don't have to do that because they know they're supposed to. You know they're supposed to. And in this time of year, particularly when people are very stressed, people are acting out, people are in all kinds of mental health crises as well, separate and apart from that. It's just one of those really sad things as a country that we can't do better than this and we can do better than this. That's the thing. We really can. We can do better than what we're doing, which is why Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were elected last month. I'll come on to Biden and Harris a little later on. But for now, please, everyone, wear a mask. Thank you. This is more than any week, even in the financial crisis in 2008. I mean, any week in history. Isn't that right? You're absolutely right. I mean, if you just looked at this week alone, 712,000 people filing for the first time for unemployment benefits before this pandemic, that would have been history making. History making. We've had 37 weeks in a row like that. 37 weeks in a row of making history in the wrong direction. So many people losing jobs uh, and filing for the first time for unemployment gain, gain, uh, uh, claims. Now, we've also got pandemic unemployment insurance program people in there, too. You add that in, and last week it was a million people filing for unemployment. So what happens next? Well, these programs are running out, uh, and people have been out of work for so long, they're going to start rolling out of these programs unless Congress does something. This is is, you know, a four-alarm fire, DEFCON 1. I mean, mix your metaphors however you want. You have a real serious job crisis in America with 20 million people getting some sort of jobless benefits, and those are going to start expiring, Jim. And, I mean, the, the, I mean as if 2020 could, could get any worse, but, but some of this is going to happen the day after Christmas, is it not, yeah. the expiration of these benefits? Yeah, like about 12 million people are going to start rolling off those benefits just the very day after Christmas. So imagine a paycheck stopping or a jobless check stopping yeah. uh, for some 12 million people. To add insult to injury, earlier this week we heard from the Government Accountability Office that a majority of states have been paying the bare minimum in those pandemic unemployment, the gig worker uh, jobless checks, instead of what they were really owed. So there's a whole bunch of back accounting uh, and shortchanging that's been going on here, too. So the whole thing is such a huge number of people thrown out of the labor market at once that it's an unholy mess here trying to figure out how to make uh, people whole. And Congress has been just back and forth, round and round for months on this. Americans are standing on the edge of a financial aid cliff right now at the end of the year. Listen, let's hope that message gets through. Christine Romans, thanks very much. You're welcome. Welcome back. I think that report from Christine Romans of CNN Business speaks for itself. People 
are losing their jobs. I mean, what is happening? What what is happening? Why do you think that's happening? Obviously, we know that there's a virus, but this is the richest country on the planet. Why aren't we providing more for people who are out of work? I do talk about this often in other countries, and I can hear someone saying now, well, why don't you go to those countries and live there then? In other countries, like Denmark, people are paid via the government in cooperation with the place that they work in for a full year plus. In fact, as long as the crisis goes on for the pandemic or whatever the crisis is, people are paid their wage. And not only are they paid their wage, in Denmark, they are also paid supplemental monies for groceries, for laundry, dry cleaning. Oh, you need to spend money for groceries. Oh, here, here's some money that you're going to get on a frequent, you know, every month basis, every week, whatever it might be, every few weeks basis. Oh, here, here's some money. We're going to give you not just your wage. We're going to give you Comfort in terms of, oh, don't worry, here's some food for you. Here's money for you to buy food. Here's money for you to clean your sheets, dry clean, go to the laundromat, clean your your sheets, your clothing, or whatever. Dry clean your clothing and, you know, do your laundry. We're going to give this to you until this crisis is over. And the government makes deals with these companies and that's what happens in Denmark. It's not the only country that does it, but that's the country that I always like to talk about. Now, it's not a bowl of cherries and cream and peaches in Denmark, but their virus rates are much lower than they are here. And even though the virus has been in Denmark as well, the way they've approached this has been a whole lot better than we are. We have. America's the richest country on the planet. There's no reason why we can't be doing the same thing here that they're doing in Denmark. It's obviously working in Denmark. There's no reason why we can't do the same here. Pay people. Not through the unemployment benefits programs that run out. You know, the day after Christmas. I mean, do you imagine 12 to 15 million Americans are going to lose any kind of income at all that they have, any semblance of it, in addition to the fact that they've already lost their job? They're going to lose what little that they're being paid anyway, and it's being underpaid, as you heard there from Christine Romans. If the Denmark model was used here in the United States, we wouldn't have to worry about losing anything. We wouldn't have to have this massive unemployment with the economy in tatters. We wouldn't have to worry about people being foreclosed on their homes, about people being evicted. 
we wouldn't have to worry about these things. Why? Because we'd have a social safety net that provided for the health and the general welfare of the people. That's what Denmark does. It's successful in Denmark. It works. And there's lots of reasons why it would work here. There's just so much about the corporate enterprise now. I mean, when LBJ passed these great society programs, he signed these things into law after going through Congress and all of this. It's one of the most effective bits of legislation. That legislative period for LBJ was tremendous. And of course, he didn't do it all by himself. The Civil Rights Bill, the Voting Rights Act. These are things that people fought and died for. Black folk and others who put their lives on the line. Right? Were beaten on bridges. John Lewis, Amelia Boynton lost their lives in the struggle. James Cheney, Mickey Schwerner, Andrew Goodman, Viola Loizzo, James Reeb, Jimmy Lee Jackson, Dr. King. And people lost their lives, right? To make these changes happen. Rosa Parks, whose anniversary, I mean, 65 years ago, Just two days ago, 65 years ago on December 1st, she stood up and stood right and was in the right when she sat in the front section of a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. Heading the Montgomery bus boycott for over a year, which led to the desegregation of Busing and all kinds of other things. This all preceded, some of this preceded this great society legislation. And some of it didn't. Some of it was it was key to it. And LBJ put these sweeping measures in. He was able to get Medicare in. Even though the 20% um, compromise, if you will was put in, the Republicans said, this is not going to pass unless there's a 20% gap in there so that you're only covering 80% and the Medicare gap is the 20% that has to be passed on to the the uh, consumer, the recipient of, the, of Medicare. But that was a strong period of time, this legislative sweep. And we need that again in this country. And I I really think that's why we have to get involved. And I'm going to get to that also in a few short minutes. But we need to get involved here. And we have 48 more days of the clown show. 48 more. So that's just under seven weeks. I mean, the... The inauguration is in sight. And as I said, I'll get to that in a few minutes. But we have a moment here that's so critical now. People out of work. And if we adopted this model that they had in Denmark, we would be far better off as a nation. In so many respects. We'd have happier people, healthier people. 
there'd be less consumption of prescription drugs. I'm telling you, the whole mood, the whole spirit, the whole spiritual aspect of this nation would be different. The people would be more alive. They would be happier, generally in their hearts, happier people. If we just did what was right. That is all. But instead we've chosen that way that says that the corporation has to have the control. And that the people have to be secondary to it. That's the way that's been chosen here. And I've documented it many times with the power memo. I'm not going to go through it again and again. You know I've, I've talked about this if you are a regular listener. These moneyed interests are keeping all of this back. You know, look, we've, we've talked about this before. And I've had conversations with people about this. And there have been studies about this. If you are of the 99%, the chances of any legislation that directly benefits you, that gets actually passed, is... Very, very small indeed. While as if you are in the 1% or whereas if you are in the 1%, the top 1%, almost all the legislation that you are lobbying for gets passed. Pretty much everything. One way or another. You know, it slipped in here. There's a little pork. There's a little this. There's a little that. And that's how it works. That's how this system is. We have to bring about some changes, seismic ones. And the system itself is the thing that needs to go. It really does. And it's not going to go if you just make a mean face at it. Because it is a thing, it is a collective And one of the things we need to do is vote in politicians in that system who are not necessarily going to kiss up to it. Now, that's a delicate balance in politics because inevitably there are compromises that people find themselves making once they get to Washington. But there are going to be people, as we have seen, who aren't going to just go along to get along. And we are seeing it in Congress Cory Bush will be in Congress. AOC is in Congress. Elon Omar is in Congress. Ayanna Presley is in Congress. Rashida Tlaib is in Congress. And there are others. Jamal Bowman is on his way to Congress. These are progressive people who aren't going to go along to get along. They want some real meaningful change. And we must have real, meaningful change. This job situation for people, it is something that defines a nation. If you don't have productivity in a nation, what do you have? I mean, it's a recipe for even more fascism and a recipe for despotism. I mean, that is really what we're looking at here. And had we made the mistake of voting Donald Trump in for another four years, you would have seen that in this country. And you were seeing these people unravel as they continue to post their gaslighting and conspiracy garbage. 
And they're just going off the charts. They are wailing and thrashing. And while they are doing that for pantomime effect and to steal more money as they go out the door, people are dying. People are jobless. People are desperate. People are stealing because they don't know what to do. They don't have a job. This has always been the case. People aren't stealing because they're just criminally minded. That's not what's going on. That's never what's going on. It's because people are in need. I'm not condoning someone breaking into your home or mine or anyone else's. I am only saying that there is a system that perpetuates and perpetrates all of this. And people are reacting to it in different ways. Some people are reacting by breaking into someone's home. Some people are reacting by taking a lot of prescription drugs. Some people are reacting by drinking. Some people are reacting by eating and eating and eating. Some people are reacting by being violent. I'm not justifying or advocating any of those things. I don't condone especially that last one. There is something that's going on that's not good. And when people lose jobs, this has a domino effect. It hits family. It affects relationships. The index and incidence of domestic violence increases, especially this time of year. What are we doing to protect those who are survivors? What are we doing to protect them at this time of year, at any time of year? We have to be a better society. Can we be the great society of LBJ in terms of these legislative measures? Can we get anywhere close to that? And I know that involves unpacking questions and issues of quote unquote divided government. But with these two Senate races in Georgia, we have a unique opportunity to actually have government that is not divided in that way. Lord knows of these last four years, we need a fresh start. Too many people are dying. Too many businesses are going out of business. And too many people are on the unemployment line. Too many people are on food bank lines. There must be a better way forward. CNN Chief Business Correspondent Christine Romans joins us now with more, uh, some new job figures out today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another more than 700,000 people filed for the first time, Jim, for unemployment benefits in this country. Add in the people filing for uh, unemployment benefits under those gig worker programs. You got a million people for the first time uh, out there looking for a jobless check. So it shows you the depths of the jobs crisis that we still have here uh, in this country. You can see that stock index futures are barely mixed here right now. I would say searching for direction here. you got a split screen, really, right? You've got stocks near record highs, and you have a lot of pain still happening on Main Street. So that Wall Street-Main Street divide, still a big story here. We'll and Sutlin, you know, Democrats have come down significantly from their demands early on of more than $2 trillion. So, so accepting, in effect, this $900 million or so plan, any sign Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans willing to move up closer to that? 
Uh, not yet, Jim, is the most blunt answer to that. And you mentioned that Speaker Pelosi and Chuck Schumer came out yesterday and did make this huge concession backing that bipartisan, bicameral proposal um, that many moderate senators sat down and kind of hashed out in the last few uh, days and weeks. That was seen uh, as a way essentially that these talks might get revived. The fact that Pelosi and Schumer came out and abandoned their plan that they had long held firm on and backed this plan that, uh, that's being put together by Senators Manchin, Senator Collins, and a few other moderate senators, that a huge step forward. But then on the other side, you have Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and his own plan, a largely scaled back plan, much smaller plan. And he has said uh, yesterday up here on Capitol Hill, he said, look, the president is not going to sign any other plan than my plan. But then you also have some other Republican leaders like the Senate uh, Majority Whip John Thune. He said yesterday, look, where we may end up might be just merging McConnell's plan and this bipartisan plan. So the path forward seems like it's potentially starting to be plotted out up here on Capitol Hill. But of course, as always, the devil are, is in the details. And right now, this $908 billion plan, it's just a framework. There's no text behind it. So, so much has to happen between now and then to get people across the finish line. And you have, of course, the huge roadblocks that have always been present in this negotiating process over the price tag, over state and local funding. All of that needs to be worked out. So still a, a long way to go, Jim. Lord, well, people are waiting, you know, people are waiting. Indeed, Jim Shuto, people are waiting. People have been waiting. They've been waiting. They're done waiting. And some people are taking things into their own hands. Going into neighborhoods and breaking into people's homes. Stealing their mail. Looking for checks of some kind. They'd, I mean, this is where we are in this country. If you go on the next door app, you will see any number of people telling you stories about people who've broken in to their homes, to their mailboxes. I get this every day in my inbox. Stories of people around here breaking into this neighborhood, into places in this neighborhood. And that people now are leaving the neighborhood because, you know, gosh, that's happening in this neighborhood in San Francisco. And they don't care, quite frankly, that there's a pandemic and that people are desperate. They, they don't give a rat's ass about that. What they're obviously looking at is, freaking heck, you know, my, my house just got burgled. Bloomin' hell, someone stole my mail. There are people who are not going to be empathetic enough to understand what's going on when someone's just stolen their check or someone's just stolen a gift that was sent to them or someone's just stolen some mail or someone's just broken into their garage and taken their bike. Their the empathy gets thrown out the window for most people when that happens to them. People are desperate. People are struggling. I am not defending stealing. I, I do not condone any of it. I'm simply saying that that is what is going on. Now, what are we going to do about all of this? And the answer isn't, let's throw more police at this. The answer is, looking at this problem in a systemic way and absolutely changing and getting rid of a system that perpetuates this criminality in the first place. Whether it's criminality at 1600 Pennsylvania, 
with Donald Trump and his Trump crime family, or whether it's people on the street who desperately need help. They're doing it out of desperation and necessity. Donald Trump and his family and the Republicans are doing it out of greed and rank criminality. That's absolute criminality. I mean, all of these pardons, all of this stuff that's going on, even Bill Barr's investigating it. I mean, you know, the stuff with Ivanka Trump deposed that yesterday or the day before around uh, alleged misuse, misuse, alleged misuse of inaugural funds. Melania Trump has been subpoenaed. I mean, you know, you've got an investigation going on with the Manhattan District Attorney in New York, Cyrus Vance. You've got the state's district, uh, the state's attorney general in New York State. Tish James investigating the Trumps and the Trump organization. I mean, it's these are criminals. These are criminals. Criminal. This is criminal behavior. People at Trump University getting scammed. I mean, this is a systemic thing. And the Trumps are doing what the system has done forever to the everyday person. You know, look at what's going on. People are really in a bad way. And as you just heard there from Sunland Safati, a CNN correspondent and congressional reporter. Look at what the Democrats are doing. This has been a massive failure. Now the Democrats, now the House leadership, which I have criticized and praised in various parts of this year, 2020. They're now backing off their $2 trillion Nancy Pelosi-led uh, plan. Now they're coming down to around $908 billion. And as you just heard, the negotiations now are happening with these moderate Republicans and centrist Democrats. And it's just unreal. Because then why didn't you do this before the election? You know, I remember at the time I was defending Speaker Pelosi. I was defending her and I agree and she's quite right at the time to say that the Democrats had made and she had made so many concessions. But she was not going to concede to things that weren't going to put the interests of the American public first. And so she held out on principle on that. Now, a lot of people were upset about that because people needed relief and they didn't care about what might come. They wanted relief. They wanted a stimulus check. They wanted a bill that was going to keep them afloat financially, if only for a few more weeks, if only for another quarter, if only for a little while longer to get through this period. But that didn't happen. Mitch McConnell was not at the table, the Republican Grim Reaper. He was nowhere near. And we are in another Republican Great Depression. As you've heard from Christine Romans, and as you heard from Sunland Safati, this is, this is a, they didn't say it, but I'm saying it. This is a second Republican Great Depression, just like the one in 1932. Unprecedented job loss. There's still over 21 million people in this country without a job. They've lost their jobs. 
people who are working two and three jobs have no jobs to work in now. And it's bad enough that people are working three jobs. We are really looking at this and the Democrats now are at a crossroads. The House Democratic leadership. Because now they're going to maybe do a deal, but as you heard, Sunland Safati, no framework. It's all talk right now. It's all people putting numbers on a board, but nothing has been hashed out yet. I was one of the people who felt that there was going to be a deal done after the election, and there still may be before Donald Trump slinks out the back door. But that's why these two Senate races in Georgia are so important. It's so important that Georgia voters get out and vote for John Ossoff and Reverend Warnock. Over a million absentee ballots have already been requested. And you, if you are a Georgia voter, can request yours now at ballot request dot sos dot ga dot gov please do that now remember that we have just four more days in georgia to register to vote the deadline the very last day to register to vote in georgia is december the 7th december the 7th that is monday Make sure that you are registered to vote in Georgia. If you have a mail-in ballot, you can mail that ballot in now in Georgia for these two very important runoff races that will determine who controls the U.S. Senate come January, just after January the 6th. Very, very important. It could be the difference between a moderate or modest stimulus bill package and a big one. Now, am I going to expect that people are going to want to wait and take a chance? No. But at the very least, if you have democratic control in all three branches of, um, well, two branches of government, the House and the Senate, which is one branch, is bicameral legislative branch, and the White House with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, that's that's will be fit the mandate that you have. 81 million votes is a mandate. Winning by nearly five points is a mandate. Winning by seven million votes and counting is a mandate. Joe Biden has those things and we have to push and facilitate. And the House Democrats now, I think, the leadership at least, has egg on its face. And what you're seeing right now, at least what I think you're seeing right now, is a lot of covering up for the failures to get a stimulus bill passed. You've got President Obama out there. You know, he's got his book. And look, I spent the money on his book. Peddling his book and using that for publicity and saying things about 
Black Lives Matter and specifically, though, defunding the police is the thing he's been talking about lately. Oh, defund the police is a bad thing and, you know, it's not the kind of thing that you could win over people with and you'll lose people. Who are you losing? No one says anything about defunding education, but that's what's happening. That's what Betsy DeVos has continued to do in the tradition of Ronald Reagan. Defund education. No one's even talking about that. And while it may be a few people here and there who are saying defund the police, the fact of the matter is, is that none of the people who ran their races and lost them as Democrats in the House were even sporting defund the police as a policy issue. Yet they still lost. Are you telling me that's because of three words? Really? You're telling me that the reason why Democrats in the House lost their seats was because of three words? Are you really going to insult us like that? Do you really think that we are foolish or that stupid? And so that's what President Obama's doing. That's what Jim Clyburn's been doing. That's what Hakeem Jeffries has been doing. These centrists and moderates are telling us that, oh my gosh, these are dangerous words. Defund the police. Ooh, very scary. I mean, you're just frightened, aren't you? Uh, don't those three words send chills down your spine? I mean, surely that sends as many chills down your spine as Breonna Taylor being murdered in her bed. George Floyd being choked to death for nearly 10 minutes by a cop. I mean, surely, I mean, defund the police is really scary, isn't it? When Rayshard Brooks is shot in the back at least twice while running from police in Atlanta, while Ahmaud Arbery is murdered by these three white animals. I mean, that, you know, one of them being a cop or used to be in the uh, the DA's office in the county there in Georgia where it happened. I mean, yeah, I mean, that stuff is not nearly as bad as defund the police. Oh, oh, President Obama, defund the police is just, oh my God. Oh my goodness me. Those three words just knocked over these weak House Democrats, didn't they? No. No, they didn't. And you know that. And Jim Clyburn knows that. He knows that. Hakeem Jeffries knows that. And any other moderate Democrat knows that. Any blue dog Democrat knows that. Any corporatist knows that. This isn't about three words. This is not about three words. This is about an inability of the House Democratic leadership to craft a clear and coherent message. And these House Democrats who lost, many of them, most of them overwhelmingly centrist Democrats, did not have a clear message. They were too busy hoping not to alienate 
people who may be on the right politically. So they wanted to cozy up just close enough so that they could present to voters a so-called unclear picture and make sure that the contrast was bare and slight between themselves and the Republican candidate. I keep referring to Max Rose in Staten Island, New York, the centrist Democrat who lost his race. And he lost to a Republican who, again, I saw the debate and she was very good. Even though I didn't agree with her positions, she debated her case better than Max Rose did. And I forget her name. I believe it, her first name may be Nicole. And I'm sorry, I should have had her name researched. I should have had that to my mind. And I'm sorry, I don't. But she argued her position. She was convicted of her position, meaning she had conviction of her position. And very persuadable, very persuadable. And that's what voters did. They were persuaded. And I think the reasons also beyond the murky, oh, I'm a centrist, vote for me message was that voters blamed the House Democratic leadership for failing to come up with a stimulus bill, rightly or wrongly, despite the fact that people um, knew that Pelosi came down and compromised and that the Republicans generally didn't. It was revealed that there never was, they were never, clo they were never close to a deal. They were never close. Mnuchin and P Pelosi were never close to a deal. Never. That was a story that came out a few weeks ago. I'll try to see if I can get that story and link it so you can read it. So my question is, what was it all about? I mean, the bottom line is, I told you, I spoke to voters in Pennsylvania and a few months ago, and one of them said to me, if this bill does not go through, I'm voting for Trump. That's what this guy said to me, a voter that I phone called to in Pennsylvania. I called other voters, spoke to other voters, and they said things about this stimulus bill. I'd called Nevada, I'd called... PA, I'd called Georgia, I'd called several states. And some of these voters expressed that concern to me. The truth is, is that when you're struggling to put food on a table for your family, you're not thinking about whether or not Speaker Pelosi came down a trillion dollars. You're not thinking about whether or not the Republicans did enough to compromise. What you're thinking about is where is my next meal coming from for my kids? How much starving am I going to have to do so that my kids can get some food? How many meals am I going to have to go without before this is all over with? This is what's going on. The average person doesn't have time to go into, oh, well, Speaker Pelosi did this and they didn't. And that's what voters punished these House Democrats for. The House Democrats lost what? Between nine and 15 seats? They now have a, a nine or 10 or 11 seat majority down from what, 20 or so? 20, whatever it was. 
And it's the House Democrats that have to get introspective and stop blaming progressives. I talked about this before in a prior episode. Stop trying to make progressives the scapegoat here. Progressives are the ones who backed Joe Biden, who campaigned hard for him, who voted for him. It wasn't Republicans who voted for Joe Biden in large numbers at all. It wasn't even white people at large who voted for Joe Biden. The majority of white people who voted voted for Donald Trump. 58% of white men and 55% of white women. So what is the Democratic Party's angle now? Is it just about maintaining power? Win an election here, win a general election here, lose a general election there. Isn't it just about you maintaining your power? I've long argued that. That Democrats don't really care about winning general elections. They care about maintaining their own power in the party. Now, of course, they cared about this general election. And I'm glad that Joe Biden won. But there's so much that needs to be done. And one thing that President Obama should not be doing is talking down and spitting in the face of George Floyd or of the hundreds of thousands and millions of people who marched through the streets all summer and fall long all over this country, black, white, Asian, Latinx, gay, straight, able-bodied, non-able-bodied, President Obama spat in their faces when he said, oh, well, you know, uh, a slogan, a snappy slogan like that. We can't have that. You know, why would you want to use a slogan about what's your goal? Is it to just have people feel good who agree with you or is it to, to do something? That's the contempt that President Obama showed. Oh, oh, yeah. And by the way, here's another instance of contempt from President Obama. This is from May of 2016. Flint's recovery is everybody's responsibility. And I'm going to make sure that responsibility is met. That's why I'm here. To tell you directly that I see you and I hear you. Somewhere when I was two years old, I was taking a chip of paint, tasting it, 
and I got some lint. Yeah, that's like talking about like, well, I didn't wear a seatbelt and I'm fine. It's like, but there were tons of people that died. Backstage, the president sitting at the table with the criminal governor decided to perform his stunt all over again. You know, generally I have not been doing stunts here, but you know. <laughs> that's not what I expected. That's what Snyder did. It felt like he minimized like what people were actually going through and struggling with. If you were actually lead poison, you would not be president. You would be janitor Barack Obama. That was President Obama in Flint, Michigan, May of 2016. That was from the Michael Moore documentary from 2018, Fahrenheit 11.9. Now that's a clip that I just played that many people are not aware of. You may not even be aware of that. And President Obama did that. He totally showed contempt for the people of Flint, Michigan, for black people in Flint, Michigan, who were being poisoned by the Republican governor, Rick Snyder, a criminal who basically was allowed to escape free of charge. He didn't get any criminal penalty against him. I think only one person went to prison or, you know, I mean, or was sentenced. I mean, or found guilty. I mean, this is just evil stuff. And President Obama, as you heard, pulled this stunt on the people of Flint, Michigan, of the working class, the poor, and black folk in Michigan, in Flint specifically, pulled a stunt on them. I mentioned this briefly uh, when I spoke with uh, Laura Cronin, a longtime Detroit, Michigan resident, a week or so ago. But I wanted to really flesh that out some more here. The election is over and President Barack Obama is talking like this and talking down to black people and the activist movement and showing his contempt and arrogance as he did in the clip you just heard. I have tweeted this clip on my Twitter page at the popcorn R-E-L. And I tweeted that on December the 3rd, 2020. I retweeted it on that day, actually. I had initially done it the day before. Tweeted it first on December 2nd. And that clip never gets shown on the news media. Because, you know, for the last two weeks, and I've said this before, I said it last week in an episode I did on President Obama. We've been treated to this very hagiographic treatment of the former president. There was a three or four hour documentary on him over two nights. Oh, Obama. That's what it was called, Obama. Right? Then there was, before that, there was the interview that Jonathan Capehart did, which was a good interview of President Obama. It was all designed to push and sell his book, which, by the way, as I keep saying, is a very underwhelming read at the minute. I find it hard to even read that book, not because I don't understand it, but because I expected so much more, which I think mirrors what some people feel about Obama, that they expected more. And we need to do more, and we need to make sure that we don't 
allow complacency to get us to this place again. Where that by the time we had our eight years of Obama, we just went blah. Most of us did. And then when it came to Hillary Clinton, we just didn't participate, many of us, which is really sad. We cannot allow complacency that we've got now that we've got Joe Biden and Kamala Harris coming in. A lot has to be done. A lot has to be done. And we cannot allow there to be this contempt. We have to stand here and we have to hold people accountable. There is no time for a honeymoon. This first 100 days thing, you have to scrap that mentality, folks. We have a pandemic. We have a very serious situation with jobs in this country. The economy stinks. This is a depression that we're in. Another Republican Great Depression. We've got over 21 million people who've lost their jobs. I mean... There is no time to let people settle in. President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris know this. They are already working feverishly. They really are. I mean, this is not a joke here. They know how tall this task is going to be. It was just like it was back in 2009 when Obama and Biden walked in to the bat on the back of another Republican tanking everything. I mean, that's what happens. It's, it's like this is what the system does. One group tanks it, the other one repairs. One group tanks it, the other one repairs. The Democrats, you know, the, the Republicans tank it, the Democrats repair. And it just goes back and forth between those two parties. We've got to put some pressure on that mold. We really do. Because... All in all, the system just keeps doing what it's doing, no matter what. And we will totally allow it to continue if we don't wake up and start to do things, to act and get engaged and involved. So we must hold Biden and Harris accountable. And I know there's talk about the, the NAACP and others and the, the uh, Latino caucus um, and others and the CBC wanting more black and Latino people. And I agree they should be in top position because, yes, I think so far there's been one black person in a top position um, as a UN ambassador, U.S. ambassador to the UN. But there needs to be a lot more than that. There needs to be, in terms of heads of departments, there needs to be black people in them. There needs to be Latin people. There need to be Native American people. There need to be Latinos and Native Americans as well. Put Michelle Lujan Grisham in as the HHS secretary. Please do it. Do it. Put that person in that position, please. Latinos were one of the big keys in this election. Black folk were the biggest key in this election. You've got to put these top-level people in top-level positions. Michelle Lujan Grisham, the governor of New Mexico, has 40 years of experience in this area of health. She's up for the task. She can do this. So put her in that position, Mr. Vice President and uh, Mr. President-elect. Do that. Why keep people waiting? 
hire black people in these positions. Put Jay Johnson in as defense secretary. You know, labor, put put someone Latino in labor. I mean, if it's Bernie Sanders, I guess people will take that. The progressives will, many of them, some of them. But can we have some more color in these positions, please? I mean, we have to fight everything, right? We have to fight for everything. We had to fight to get Kamala Harris to be the vice president pick of Joe Biden. We had to fight. How many black women had to write letters you know, the, th- the four that I know of, you know, who wrote to the Washington Post and put out an editorial. Joe Biden's got to pick a black woman for VP. Joe Biden didn't do it because he felt like it. It's because he was pushed. LBJ was pushed. FDR was pushed. Make me do it. That's the mantra. So that's what we've got to do. We've got to do that. And we will have to do that. And we will have to get House Democrats to stop wasting time and Republicans to get serious. But the Republican Party has no intent to get serious about anything but stealing because that's what they've been doing for 50 plus years, 60 years. If you include, uh, well, stealing elections, you know, treason, Nixon. I mean, it's been 60 years almost. Watergate break-ins and I mean, that could go on and on and on. And the current grift. This guy is stealing cash and carry from his own supporters who don't care and from everybody else. Your taxpayer dollars being taken for garbage, for grift, for stealing. He's stealing cash and carry, waving his arms in the air. Oh, no, 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 no. Just like Hank Paulson did years ago under W. Oh, you've got to give us a bailout. And of course, Congress bailed them out, bailed out the banks. Come on, folks. We can do a whole lot better than this. I know we can. I know we can. The progressive movement, black people, Latinos, and Native Americans and young people were the people who got Joe Biden into office. It wasn't Jim Clyburn. It wasn't President Obama either. It was people who voted en masse. And you saw that those black counties, those black cities, that Trump and these other racist Republicans were challenging, they knew what was going on. Black folk were the difference. And in Arizona and Nevada, the Latino community was the difference. The Native American community was the difference. And in college towns, you had young people voting. They were the difference. So Joe Biden has to put people in who represent those areas. Believe me, this is how the game is played. And Joe Biden can't afford to turn his back on those people. That is his base now. Donald Trump plays to his base. Don't you know that? Don't you notice that that angry, loud 35 to 40 percent, the fringiest among that group of people, 
Donald Trump has no compunction at all about playing to them. He's got no reservation about it. But the Democrats seem to run away from their base. The Democrats don't want to acknowledge that Black Lives Matter and defunding the police are themes. Some people like that theme of defund the police, some do not. But the point is, is that it's not three words that cost anybody elections. It is the lack of action around those words that costs people elections and a lack of advocacy. Next to Donald Trump, Joe Biden would have seemed liberal to anybody. He didn't have to run a campaign that said, burn it down. He didn't have to. Donald Trump was that campaign on the other end of the scale. Joe Biden just had to be Joe Biden. And next to Donald Trump, that would have worked for anybody. Legislative history and record aside. It was a steady hand. It was about healing the soul of the nation and about attacking this virus and getting people back on their feet. Joe Biden was never campaigning on ideological things. Never was. That's where you and I come in. We need to have a Biden-Harris administration that restores a sense of humanity, a sense of recognition and protection of it. And the way we do that also is to vote for these two senators in Georgia. If you are a Georgia voter, please, I cannot stress enough. Vote now. If you can vote by mail, please do it or vote in person beginning December 14th. There is a debate coming up this coming Sunday at 4 p.m. Eastern time. I believe it's 4 p.m. I'm sorry, it's 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. A debate in the Georgia uh, between two candidates, between Reverend Warnock and Kelly Leffler, who is currently the senator in Georgia. Don't miss that debate. It's live on CNN this coming Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Come on, folks, we can do this. We can do this. We can get two Democratic people into the Senate in the United States. And we've got to start turning things around in this country. That means we've got to be more active. We cannot fall asleep and allow for what happened the last time, which brought us to Trump. Because if we fall asleep for these next four years, we're going to have Trump again or someone like him in 2024. Make no mistake. In fact, I don't think Trump's going to run. He may announce that he's going to run, but I don't think that he will run eventually. I don't think he will. Got too many criminal prosecutions to worry about and civil ones. He's not going to run. That's all a publicity stunt to make more money, to steal more money on the way out the door. Yeah, I know it's cynical, but it's the truth. Look at Donald Trump. My goodness, for the last 50 years, what else has he done but lie and steal? And commit crimes against women, violating. I mean, what else has he done? That's all he's done for 50 years. Why would you expect him to be any different? This is all a show. We have got to 
avoid going back to the place that we are in now. And that's the problem. We keep going back. We get the Democratic president and then we all fall asleep. Many of us do. And then, hey, presto, boom, some Republican comes along, convinces you to uh, vote against your best interests or vote your racism. And boom, you've got a Republican again destroying the country. I mean, that's how it's gone, right? George W. Bush did the same thing. He destroyed a lot of things, foreign policy-wise and internally. I mean, come on. We cannot afford to let this keep happening because that's how the system stays the way it is. We've got lots of work to do. And we've got to be engaged these next four years. Otherwise, in 2022, you will see the House go back to the Republicans. And I still think that that's going to happen. Especially if these Democrats continue to blame black folk and activist folk and progressives and other people. Oh, you're the reason why we lost. You're spitting on the very base that got you to where you are. And this whole thing about Jim Clyburn's the savior. Jim Clyburn was not the savior for J- Joe Biden in South Carolina. Black voters were, period. And as I've said before, black voters do not need to hear from Jim Clyburn. I think black voters have enough independence in their own minds that they can determine for themselves who to vote for in a primary you're treating Jim Clyburn like he's the hand of God or something. And he's come down and he's, oh, in this proclamation and someone told me I should say something. And Really? I mean, we love being told narratives, don't we? Don't we just love that? That's the story that gets pumped over and over and over again. And all Jim Clyburn has done since is crap all over black activists and the activist community and progressives. Oh, defund the police. Oh, it's ridiculous. That's why we lost. Insulting the intelligence of you, the voter, of you, the person, insulting your intelligence. The corporate centrist Democrats will have to learn there is a new day out here. It is a new day. And there are progressives in the Democratic Party who aren't going to stand for this now. We've played that game long enough. We have a mandate, folks. Not Jim Clyburn. We do. You do. We all do. So let's actually take use of that. We gave Joe Biden the mandate he has. We are the mandate. 81 million people voted for this man. And we have to push him to do the right thing. Just like all these groups now, the NAA and the uh, Latino Caucus and all these groups are lobbying now for Biden to put black folk and Latino folk in these positions, in high ranking top positions. We have to start doing the same thing when it comes to the agendas. I've talked about agenda building and we have to build agendas. And we have to start doing that now. I know there's lots of things that preoccupy you. But if we are going to have a better society and a better functioning government, we are going to have to start putting pressure on these folks. Celebrate your inauguration because Lord knows I will be. I'll be celebrating history. I'll have my champagne or whatever beverage of choice. 
I'll be loving it, January 20th. Trust me, I'll be loving it. But after that, confetti and the inaugural balls are gone and the pomp and circumstance and the parades are done, it's time for us to push Joe Biden, Kamala Harris. No honeymoons. No honeymoons allowed. We don't have a honeymoon in America. We don't. We have 275,000 people who have died from coronavirus. We have 21 million people out of work. We have unemployment rates through the roof. We have a Great Depression in this country, a Republican Great Depression. There are no first 100 days. There is no settling in. You tell the average American in this country, the average person in America to settle in while their job benefits are being taken from them, while their relative dies from coronavirus, while they can't see their relative because they are separated from them and they die from coronavirus, or they starve, or they're on a food line waiting for five or six hours. There is no time for settling in. There is no time for honeymoons. America had to sacrifice a Thanksgiving, sacrifice Christmas or any other holiday, and there will be no honeymoon for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. There will be no honeymoon. And they know this as well. So let's support them. But more importantly than supporting them, we need to push them. That's what we need to do. So that we can have a country that begins to take on the look and the actual doing of our bidding. The people's bidding. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. Mm-hmm.